Forgive me. It is good to look out and see each and every one of you here today. He is risen. Okay, some of you got it. The response is, he is risen indeed. Let's try it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. Amen. Say it like you mean it. Amen. Good stuff. Well, we're here on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning, and uh, I want to welcome all of you here, of course, the regular members of Vero Bible Fellowship, as well as visitors that might be with us. We're delighted that everyone is here. We're thankful for each and every one of you. We're not the kind of church that puts an emphasis on performance. In fact, we don't think that performance is what church should be about. Church is an experience of worship of God. And so all we need to worship God is coming with a real, authentic relationship with Him. We come before Him, we are honest, we're real, and that means that you're going to see things happen from time to time at Vero Bible that maybe looks like a mistake, and we're like, hey, that's just how it is. We're just being real and authentic, and, and that's the kind of church we choose to be. And uh, we're just glad that you're part of this service today. I, I want to leave our regular weekly text, which is we're doing a verse-by-verse study through uh, the book of Acts. We're going to leave uh, that verse-by-verse study and actually stay in the book of Acts, but go back to a sermon, the very first sermon ever preached in the church age. It's in Acts chapter 2. It's when Peter delivered the message on the day of Pentecost. And let me just say this to you before we go into the text that the entire world, in some way, shape, or form, is celebrating Easter season. Uh, All over the world, people are celebrating. In Jamaica, they will eat a slice of spicy raisin bun and cheese. And at dinner time, they will throw garlic on the floor as a sign of good luck on Easter. I'm just reading it, okay? In the Czech Republic, a tradition, ladies, please, we are in America, so this could easily be offensive to some of you, but this is a cultural thing in Czech Republic. In Czech Republic, a tradition of spanking a young woman on Easter Monday. In the morning, listen now, let's hear the whole thing before you make a judgment, because right now the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up. In the morning, men spank women with young women with a, a young man spanks a young woman with a special handmade whip called an Easter switch, which is not a whip at all. It's actually just this little flimsy thing that has these ribbons hanging off of it. Uh, there's no way it's going to hurt anybody. And here's the thing. Here's what it's about, okay? Now think about Easter, and this is the focus of Easter, okay? The purpose is that men are to exhibit their attraction to a particular woman. An unspanked woman in Czech Republic on that Monday might feel offended if she's not spanked. Now, okay, this is what happens at Easter time, okay? Um, In Belgium this morning, people hid their loved one's shoes, and then they demanded some witty task for their return. The Bavarians will be chasing each other around a pole on Easter. In Norway, interestingly, all the television shows for the entire week 
all the telephone, uh, te television shows are crime shows. That's all. I'm just reading what I, what I learned from these countries. They're watching crime shows during Easter week. Okay, That's what they do uh, in Norway. In Ireland, it's the biggest day for the biggest race where the most money is bet. Outside the cathedral in Florence, Italy, the people will set ablaze an ox cart full of fireworks. God help those oxen that are calling, that are holding that. The Scandinavians will bring out their special seasonal Easter beer. And in Rio, they are preparing for, three, uh, for uh, this coming Wednesday when the carnival will start. And it will go on for 10 days. And you just know there's going to be a lot of hangovers in Rio. But it's kicked off today in Easter, the Easter Sunday. Interestingly, in North America, some men and women will put out a hat and, uh, and wear it at the church. Others will go buy a dress. Others will buy a new suit. I, looked, I saw this morning little Joey walking by here going off to children's ministry in a dapper-looking little suit with a bow tie. That was pretty cool. Amen. All right. Good job, Mom. And, uh, and, 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 and kids will stuff their faces in America with Cadbury Easter cream eggs, Reese's peanut butter eggs, and Starburst Easter jelly beans. Mm-mm-mm. Okay? All that sugar. And don't think churches are immune to the silly traditions. Some will have petting zoos. Others will have egg hunts others will have bounce houses and yes there will even be eggs falling from the sky so that's the easter all around the world the mystifying mixture of ancient faith and folklore of christianity and paganism of holiness and a whole lot of horseplay that's what happens at easter for many easter is simply a spin-off of the jewish passover feast and the Christian celebration of the resurrection of Christ with a lot of folklore, some pagan rites and rituals thrown in. In fact, the term Easter is not a Christian term at all. It's the name of the ancient Anglo-Saxon goddess of light. Her name is Yastra. Yastra. In fact, though it's interesting, it might also interest you to know that Easter celebrations predate Christianity so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually a latecomer to all the festivities happening around the globe at Easter time. So now that you have the lowdown on the hodgepodge of Easter traditions, you've got rabbits and eggs and hats and dresses and new suits and fertility rites and pagan worship and specialty beers and a horse race and throwing cold water on each other. That's how the ladies, by the way, get even with the men. They throw cold water on the men, spanking young women with switches, petting zoos, bounce houses, and on and on it goes. And somewhere in the middle of all this craziness, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, don't you know Satan just loves the fact that Jesus rising from the dead is buried under so many other distractive activities well that's not going to happen here in this message this morning i can promise you our focus is to separate the resurrection of jesus christ from all silliness and so if you have your bible you can turn to acts 2 let me just say 
before we get going, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ never gets old. That's because through Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, our, sa our Savior defeated Satan, defeated sin, and defeated death. What other event in history comes close to that? It's the greatest event that's ever occurred for mankind. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Without a bodily resurrection, I'm just going to say it, you cannot be saved. Now, I'm saying that in a day now, and this is why this message becomes so important this morning. Because in our country, more and more people are drifting through a post-Christian culture into this beliefism and acceptance of an idea that it doesn't matter that Jesus was raised bodily. He was raised in spirit. Let me tell you something. The difference between being raised bodily and in spirit is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between being a believer and knowing Jesus and having an eternal home in heaven and someone who's been duped and one day will face eternal damnation in hell. It's that significant. And I'm going to show it to you here in Scripture. There are more and more Christians who say that it doesn't matter, and I'm telling you it matters greatly. I don't know how to say this more clearly. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not saved. You can't be. You can't be. You're better off just going out and joining the Shriners or joining the Kiwanis. Quite honestly, go spend your life doing good humanitarian things. Start a social justice organization. Go join PETA. Do whatever you want, but please don't confuse your, your, your humanitarian goodness with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the biblical Christianity. Without the bodily resurrection of Christ, we are still dead in our sins, and the best thing we can have going for us is our good works that are produced out of our own self-righteousness. And that is what this world is working hard to do every day, is out of their own good self-righteousness, they do good works. But those good works will never stand before a holy God in his holy court. No work of man could ever merit salvation. Christianity isn't founded on the good things that we do. It's founded on what a perfect holy God did for us on the cross. The only way you can be saved is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That Jesus took on the full weight and the, the pain, the, 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 the suffering. He took on the anger and the wrath of holy God for you in your behalf, in your place. And then three days later to show, to prove that what he did on the cross was sufficient to satisfy a holy Angry God, angry at sin, angry at those who sin. The proof that it was sufficient, what Christ did, was that God raised him from the dead bodily. If there is no bodily resurrection, there is no guarantee of salvation, I promise you. You can't do that. Let me tell you what our righteousness looks like to holy God. 
If you're going to stand in your goodness and your reputation in this community and other places, and you're going to stand on your benevolent you know, benefits and everything else that you do, let me just give you this. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says, The prophet Isaiah said, We have all become like one who is unclean. Now, who is he speaking to? He said all. Every human being is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. That's what your good works will accomplish before God. Absolutely nothing. Friends, listen. There's no hope for humanity apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And without a bodily resurrection of Christ, there's no guarantee that his death on the cross satisfied the anger and wrath of our Heavenly Father. And that would mean that our sins were never forgiven. You're just as lost as you always were if Jesus was not raised. That is why the bodily resurrection of Christ is the central theme of the entire Bible. That is why we gather on Easter, on this Lord's Day, and we celebrate the bodily resurrection. Now in Acts 2, I haven't even got to the text, so here we go. In Acts 2, we have the first sermon ever preached. On this, in this sermon, uh, Peter preaches, guess what subject? The bodily resurrection of the Lord. And it's interesting. It was delivered by Peter, and this came on the heel of a great miracle that occurred. God brought signs and wonders on the day of Pentecost when millions of Jews had gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And there that day, all of a sudden, men began to speak in other tongues, other languages than their own language. The people who had gathered from all over the known world were hearing in their own native language from a bunch of smelly, stinky fishermen from Galilee who didn't know those languages. And what they were hearing these men say in their language was they were giving thanks to God for his mighty deeds. This caused every person then to turn and listen as Peter brings this message. And so Peter starts, and the first thing we're going to see is the facts. He lays the facts surrounding the resurrection. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the, def the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. The first thing that jumps out at us from this message that Peter is preaching is that he really believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, what good is there to preach a message that's not real? But he starts his message and heads right for the resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Jesus was a real person. He was not just some spiritual force, as some Christians would have you believe. He was a real man. He, he wasn't a fictitious figure. He was a man with a real name, 
from a real place called Nazareth. If the truth be known, Jesus was the least of all men. He, raised, he was raised by a carpenter in Nazareth. He came from a very humble upbringing. He was just a common man. And when Peter spoke these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, when he said that, he knew that they knew that because many of these people had seen this man. They had touched this man. They heard this man speak. Peter is laying down the facts about the, 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 the case that Jesus is real, a real person. Once Jesus came to a scribe, and the scribe said to Jesus, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was just a man. He was just a common man. Even the title that the Romans put over the cross was a sarcastic statement about who they thought he was. Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. They didn't say it because they believed it. They were making fun that this commoner claimed to be a king. Jesus is a real person. And Peter continues in verse 22, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Look how Peter is continually bringing the crowd that's listening who saw these wonders just a moment before. Now they're listening and he's speaking to them about their own facts that they know to be true. You know that this man was attested to you by God. How would they know that? They saw the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that Jesus did. You know that this man was in the midst of you. And guess what? As he's saying these things to the crowd, nobody in the crowd, there's no record that anybody in the crowd stood up and said, I'll refute that. That's not true. Nobody. No one. We're talking, we're talking tens of thousands of people. In Jerusalem at that time, there would have been close to 3 million people. And this crowd is hearing, and nobody's refuting. Everything Peter is saying is true. Friends, the reason I'm laying it out this way is that you might truly understand that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, and that you might say to people who question that and who think he's just a spirit, a force like Star Wars or something, listen, he's real. And these experiences were real. These wonders that were performed were real. These people saw them. By the way, the miracles describe what Jesus did among the people. The wonders describe the actions, and the sign describes what it points to. He did supernatural deeds which made them marvel and pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah. In verse 22, the last part, as you yourselves know. Peter is saying, you know what I'm talking about here. He's simply stating that the things that the crowd knew about Jesus. You knew he, was, he really lived. Okay, if Peter was making that up, they'd refute it. They didn't. And verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here's a real man from a real place who lived a real life in your midst, who died a real death on the cross, and you are implicated in it. You're the ones that put him on the cross. That's what Peter just said. 
Everything Peter's saying is historically accurate. There's no refutation to this. God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold him. Praise God. Amen? Amen. God raised him up. Jesus didn't raise himself up. The Father raised him up. Only the Father could raise him up in that situation because the only reason the Father would raise him is if the death on the cross was sufficient to forgive you of your sins. If it was insufficient, he'd have left him in the grave. But the Father raised him. Peter began by affirming Jesus' life, and now he affirms his death, a real history. So Peter has established this historical fact surrounding the life of Christ. He's a real man who did miracles by the work of God, and he died a real death on the cross. He's a real person. You've got to know that. In every sense, he was real. Yet he was never a victim of history. Jesus' death on the cross was not the death of a victim. You say, how how can that be? Because all of it, his real life, his miracles, his death on the cross, all of it was part of God's divine plan. We did skip that verse. Go back to verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Everything that happened to Jesus during the week of Passover The fact that he was beaten, unrecognizable. The Old Testament, 400 years before Jesus even came to the earth. Listen, Isaiah records that he will be be beaten until you will not recognize him. His face was so, they they, they covered his face and then soldiers took turns taking blows and hitting Jesus from different directions. And they were laughing. And they were saying, come on, if you're God, if you're something special, you've done all these miracles that people talk about, you should know which direction the blow's coming from. Bam! They hit him again. When they were finished with him, his face was so swollen out, you did not recognize him. And you say, that's awful what they did. The Father in heaven did that to him. The Bible says in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why would it please God the Father to crush Christ the Son? I don't get that. Well, understand the character of God. God is holy. We are not. We are sinners. And our sins have separated us from God. And the only hope for our relationship being reconciled or restored back to God is if God, by his foreknowledge, lays out a plan whereby the innocent can pardon the guilty. Guess who the innocent was? Jesus. Guess who the guilty is? Every human being. And Jesus went to the cross just as the Father asked him. And God poured out his wrath on Jesus because of us Jesus took the blows he took them for you your name for you all of it was God's plan the second point is there are benefits those are the facts surrounding the resurrection what about the benefits of the resurrection well here's what came out of this teaching that 
Peter gave. There's four benefits to the resurrection. First, death was conquered. Praise God. It says God raised him up in verse 24, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Death couldn't hold him. Peter said it wasn't, it wasn't possible. Jesus conquered death to the glory of the Father. This is the reality of the resurrection. Peter's making the point that because Jesus conquered death, we too will conquer death. Death can't hold us either. We have eternal destiny in God. You take your final breath on this earth and immediately you are in the presence of Almighty God. There is no break in consciousness. It's not like you, you're consciously aware, you take your final breath, you lose consciousness, and now you're in this soul sleep for however long, and then all of a sudden you wake up. Listen, after death, there's no time for you. Time ends. There is no time. Immediately, you are ushered into the presence of Almighty God. From one conscious experience in the temporal realm to an eternal realm consciousness. Think about that. That's what happens to a believer who dies. And yes, we mourn the death of a loved one because they're no longer with us. Now there's a sense of aloneness in our heart where they used to fill it. That's real. But at the same exact time that we're feeling the sorrow of loss, we can feel the joy of knowing where they are in the Lord. And we can rejoice over that. We do rejoice over that. Death simply means a new life for those who believe in Jesus. Your final breath is your entry into new life. Your final breath is not aloneness. It's oneness with the divine companion that you have, and that would be Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. For the believer, the grave isn't an ending, it's a beginning. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Some people define life as birth-death. Have you ever seen that? Birth-death. And people talk about, so what's the dash mean for you? Okay, they talk about that. Okay, let me just give you a bigger picture of that, okay? It's not birth-death. That's wrong. It's birth for a believer, birth, birth, death, Eternal life. If you die twice, you go to heaven. If you only die once, you go to hell. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. That's what the Bible teaches. For those who are unrepentant, it's birth, dash, death, eternal damnation. For the believer, it's birth, birth, death, eternal life. I'm born of my mother physically, and then I come to Christ, I'm born again spiritually. And because of that, when I die, I really start living. Amen. Hallelujah. How many times have I said it, and I'll say it again. If I keel over dead while I'm preaching, and some of you come up here from the medical industry, and you start popping my chest and pumping... <laughs> But, on the, but out of my consciousness, I went from preaching to the presence of Jesus. And I'm coming to him, and then all of a sudden, because you're doing this, oh, I'm pulling away from Jesus. 
When I come back into this consciousness, if you're able to resuscitate me, I will bust you in the mouth. Are you crazy? I'm with Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. There's also the prophecy that was fulfilled. This is another wonderful benefit of the resurrection. Verse 25, where David says concerning him, concerning Jesus. This is a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 16. He said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. David prophesied how the Messiah would always have the Father in view throughout his whole life. The reason Jesus was willing to go to his grave and because he knew was because he knew that the Father would be right there waiting for him when he raised him. And Jesus would be seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Why would the Messiah be willing to rest his body in a grave? Why would he have the confidence of resurrection? Because that's what his Father said. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus knew that. Messiah knew that. David prophesied that. So this is a prophecy about Jesus. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Christ knew he would go into the grave, never corrupt, and come out of the other side of that grave in the full joy of God's blessing and God's presence. You might be thinking Peter's misinterpreting this text in the Old Testament, that it's really about David. Well, Peter knew you would think that. So the next verse, look at verse 29 says, Peter said, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Peter is letting them know that the prophecy wasn't about David. It's about Messiah. Verse 30, being pro therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Did you know that David was a prophet? Right here, Peter said, being therefore a prophet. David was a prophet when he said these things. So death is conquered. Prophecy is fulfilled. Thirdly, Christ is exalted. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. When Jesus came out of the grave and finally ascended into heaven, Hebrews chapter 1 says God placed him at his right hand. Philippians chapter 2 says God gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. I don't care what gender you identify as. I don't care what political party you belong to. I don't care what your socioeconomic position is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, the, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's not saying that because everybody will be believers when they say it. He's saying whether you got it right on earth or not, if you place your trust in yourself, if you place your trust in some political party, if you place your trust in some science of man, 
that's not really even science, if you put your faith, your trust in anything else, listen, there will come a day you will bow down and you will see and say that Jesus is Lord. Unfortunately, if you have not received him as Savior, it will be to your damnation that you say it. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul writes that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he gave him a place far above all principalities and powers and dominions. Listen, church, Christ has been exalted. For David, verse 34, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then Satan... That means Satan is still on the, on the throne, that the usurper wins. But the truth is, our Savior was raised from the dead physically, and he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Death has been conquered. Prophecy has been fulfilled, and our Savior reigns in heaven. Oh, and don't forget, Satan has been defeated. Past tense, it's already done. Some people will say to me, I remember one man telling me one time, I said, he was bragging about going to hell. He goes, I don't, he goes, he goes I'm going go to I'm gonna be king of the devils in hell. And I said to him, uh, not even Satan is a sovereign in hell. Satan is a bound one. You're not greater than Satan. There is, the only sovereign of hell is God. God oversees everything that happens in hell. You're not going to escape God even if you go to hell. He still has authority. If Jesus is in the tomb, Satan wins. But the fact is, Jesus conquered death. He was raised bodily. That means God wins. Satan loses. Let me give you one last benefit of the resurrection, then we'll close. The Holy Spirit was given just as Jesus had promised. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So as soon as Christ came through the grave and ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit was sent down to us. And those who believed that day were 3,000, along with the 120 believers that had gathered that day to pray and to, to preach and share. So 3,120 people immediately when Jesus ascends, they receive the Holy Spirit. That means the work of the Spirit is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. The reason you know you have the Spirit living in you as a believer is because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There is a resurrection and the Holy Spirit is in us and today he is among us. He's speaking to hearts in this room right now. And that's where we come to the last part of this sermon, and that is the reaction of the people to the sermon, the reaction to the resurrection. Verse 37, now when they heard all of this, by the way, remember when Jesus would preach or when uh, uh, later it would be <clears throat> uh, Stephen who would preach or Philip would preach, and the people would want to stone them to death. They, they, they disagreed with what they were saying. They were so angry at them. Why? Because they were speaking the truth. But today's different. In this day, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said the same thing. He accused the people of being the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Why didn't they pick up stones and throw them at him? Because the Holy Spirit of God was speaking to them. Their reaction is now different. 
And so they said, now they heard this and they, they were cut to their heart. Why did Luke say it that way? What does he mean by being cut to the heart? That means the people had three reactions to the message of the resurrection. One, they knew every word was true. Two, they knew Messiah had risen from the dead. And thirdly, they knew they were the ones that killed him. They were cut to their heart. Listen, friend, Jesus died on a cross to satisfy your sin debt before Almighty God. And that one act of righteousness, by that one act, you've been saved if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe? This, this knowledge that the crowd just came into because of Peter's sermon, they said next, what must we do? What must we do? Look what Peter says in verse 38, the latter part of the verse. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lives in the believers that are in this room. If you will repent of your sin, you'll believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you. That same Spirit will come into you right now. This is a real moment. The Holy Spirit is really here. He is really wooing and drawing and calling people unto God in this room. This is when you need to look very deeply into your heart. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you don't believe in his bodily resurrection, you stand with the crucifiers. And the writer of Hebrews said this, you crucify the Son of God afresh. My prayer is that you would sense the calling of God and with the knowledge of this sermon that Peter preached, you would believe in Jesus right now. That you would sense the guilt that you carry for your sinfulness. To repent means first, it's two things. First thing repentance means is to think differently. Today you've heard a sermon about Jesus. God is trying to get you today to think differently about Jesus. See him for who he is, Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Secondly, repentance is not just thinking differently, it's turning and going a different direction. You have to actually take steps to change. You say, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died for me. I believe he offers me forgiveness for my sins today and I can have an eternity in heaven. I believe it and I receive it by faith today. And what that compels you to do because the Spirit immediately comes inside of you. It compels you to now turn and walk in a different direction in life. No longer being the same old person that you were when you came in. I don't know that anybody here is a bad person in the sense of doing bad things morally. 
I don't know that. But I'll tell you this, every person here is a sinner. And some here have been saved by Christ and will be in heaven. And the other sinners have not received by faith the work of Jesus. And they will die and go to hell. And that concerns me. Because God doesn't wish, the Bible says, that any would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. The Son didn't come to help people who were healthy. He came for the sick, spiritually sick. He came for you. Romans 10, 9, one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Look at that. You've got to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You will be saved. That is a promise from God. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you believe, you will not ever be put to shame. You'll never have to fear, you'll never have to worry about your eternal home. And you will not have to fear and worry about how do I make it through this life. Jesus will be with you every step by the Spirit through this life. So I want you to close your eyes and I'm going to pray. And I want you, if you are ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, based on the message, this sermon that Peter preached, I want you to simply lift your spiritual eyes to God and confess Jesus is God. I believe he was raised bodily. And I receive him as my savior today for the forgiveness of my sins. Just give yourself to God. That's what it means. You think differently, you go a new direction. And it's Christ doing it in you now. That's the beauty of salvation. You're not alone. He lives in you. So let's pray. Father, in this moment, I pray that in this room there are people who are right now giving over their hearts to you as they confess with their mouth that you are Lord. And they are surrendering their lives to you by repenting of their sins, by thinking differently about you and thinking differently about their own lives. And then they're turning and walking in a new direction. Your word says, if any man be or woman be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. May there be those today in this room who walk out as new creatures. Life is new for them. And they join the ranks of the family of God. And we celebrate together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, if you did pray to receive Jesus Christ, I, I would love, if you would, to let us know about that. Let us know that you've received Christ in your heart. You can go out to the table outside the hospitality area, and you can just write your name down. If somebody out there will just keep, a tr keep track of the names. Jackie, if you can make sure that they have a list of those who might come and put their name down. And we just want to pray for you and give thanks to God for your salvation. Salvation is not something to hide. 
It's something to be celebrated. And we, we will baptize you. We'll have a baptism service. That's your public declaration that I now belong to Christ. He is my life. And so just go out and put your name on the piece of paper at the table out there. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for worshiping with Vero Bible Fellowship. We're just a bunch of folks who, who want to live a simple and pure devotion to Christ. So thank you. God bless each of you. Please greet one another, love one another. And if you need prayer for any matter, we have some elders and prayer partners. Just come forward. They'll pray with you today, okay? God bless you.